Well, good morning. My name is Nathan Sherman. I'm the youth pastor here at Desert Springs. And we, the Shermans, are coming up on our four-year anniversary here at Desert Springs, which is hard to believe. And we're also coming up on our second week of the long spring, summer, and fall marathon, otherwise known as baseball season. Uh, yeah, hey, there's some energy here. I got a couple of hearty amens in the last service, so it's good to know that you're all with me. Two days ago was opening day, and as far as I'm concerned, that Monday should be a national holiday where we all either go to the park or sit at home and watch about 12 games. That's one of my favorite days of the year. I love baseball, and I love baseball more now than I did perhaps in high school or college because a huge change happened in the early 2000s in how we all viewed the game. Without giving you a huge and detailed history here, baseball forever changed in the early 2000s and mid-2000s starting with the Oakland A's and then continuing with the Tampa Bay Rays and to many other teams. Until about 15 years ago, the way that scouts, the way that executives, the way that we as fans determined whether a player was good, determined whether a player was worthwhile and worth spending hundreds of millions of dollars on was predicated on a few things. Whether or not he hits home runs, whether or not he has a ton of RBIs, whether or not he gets a ton of strikeouts, whether or not he just looks like a ball player. Perhaps you've read, or read the book or seen the movie, but the Oakland A's had to figure out a way to win games when they couldn't afford the type of player that the Yankees and the Red Sox would come and steal away from them. They didn't have a lot of money, so one author, author called their changing strategy Moneyball. The major thing that the A's began to focus on was on-base percentage. Does a person get on base? If someone has an extraordinary eye and can take 40 to 50 more walks than the average baseball player, while this isn't flashy, the last time I checked, the wa a walk counts the same as a single. But flashy is what gets the huge contracts. So the A's began to exploit a largely ignored baseball skill. Likewise, in the mid-2000s, we're going somewhere here with this, just stay with me, all right? Likewise, in the mid-2000s, a bunch of former Wall Street executives and bankers thought they'd try their hand at baseball and took over the Rays in Tampa. They brought a bunch of business principles, one of which called arbitrage, which is recognizing a weakness in the market and then exploiting it. When a valuable asset is being ignored, you exploit that asset and then sell it at its highest value. So like the A's did with on-base percentage, the Rays did with defense and pitching. If you can't hit, but you're an amazing defender, who cares? If you're adept at taking away a ton of singles and doubles, that counts just the same as if you hit a bunch of singles and doubles. So what if you don't strike out a bunch of guys? Are you good at making guys hit ground balls? Especially with our speedy and awesome defense behind you? Now we're cooking with grease. You can read all about the Rays turnaround in the excellent book, The Extra 2%. I love reading about baseball. And here's where we're getting somewhere. Here's the point. This wasn't just an excuse to talk about baseball for five minutes or so, which I, it may or may not have ever happened. Uh, as human beings, we are drawn toward what is visibly and immediately flashy. We wrongly value some people more than other people because what we think they can offer, all the while ignoring someone who might actually be either more valuable or just valuable. 
Over the past several weeks, James has set up his letter with chapter one, which essentially acts as a table of contents for the rest of his letter. Nearly everything that he brings up in chapter one, he will elaborate on in further detail in chapters two through five. Ryan showed us last week what true and undefiled religion is, how we relate to God, how true and undefiled religion gets played out in how we treat, treat the weak, how we treat the ignored, how we treat the defenseless in our society, how we treat those who the rest of the world says is unimportant. So this is a springboard for our text this morning. Though last week in 127, James told us to keep ourselves unstained from the world, he sees a deep stain in the church, that the church is actually under the influence of the world. And that deep stain is that of partiality or showing distinction. So we'll look at our text this morning in three parts. What we think is important. In contrast, what God thinks is important in a person. And then how we should respond in light of that. So let's read the first half of James 2 together, the first 13 verses. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the one who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So these first four verses, what we think is important In verse 1, James pastorally and affectionately addresses his people as my brothers. They are indeed his brothers in Christ as he assumes that they are not Christians in name only, like Ryan addressed last week. They don't just check the Christian box once per decade on the census. But they are brothers because they are holding faith in the Lord Jesus, verse 1. Now, many people assume that James doesn't have a very high view of who Jesus was or what he did because he's very rarely mentioned or emphasized in his book. By the time Paul starts writing, this myth of Jesus had come about and Paul and others have made Jesus into this godlike figure when his early followers certainly didn't think that. 
some people say. In fact, other than the first verse of this book, this is the only time James explicitly mentions Jesus. The thing is, even if we ignore the overwhelming influence of Jesus' preaching, preaching and teaching ministry that finds its way into nearly every single verse in James, this one mention in 2 verse 1 is a big one. We can kind of just blow by this verse wanting to get to the real meat of the chapter, but we should be patient. The Greek title that James gives to Jesus here is notoriously difficult to translate, and nearly every single English translation translates it differently. But I think the ESV has got it about right, where they translate saying, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That first Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, can mean just something like Master, our Master Jesus Christ. But the Lord of glory is where we're starting to get somewhere and how we understand what James understands about Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, likely in just 10 to 15 years after his crucifixion, is assigning the Old Testament Shekinah glory, the overwhelming presence of God, to Jesus. And he's saying that we Christians have faith in him. Not that we have faith in God because of some things that Jesus taught us, but that we actually have faith in Jesus, which is just an unbelievable thing for a Jewish guy in the mid-40s to say. In the mid-40s AD, that is. Much less, it's a crazy thing for the biological brother of Jesus, who like, they like tickled each other and stuff when they were little kids, and they like... I don't know, played in the dirt. For him to say this, the Old Testament glory of God is in this man whom we now have faith in is an unbelievable thing to say. James must have seen and experienced something crazy to have been able to write these words about Jesus. You know, like seen him killed on a cross and then seen him buried and then resurrected and walking around again and then ascending into heaven. Only that kind of thing is can explain the way that James identifies Jesus here. But let's not bog down there. James says that for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very glory of God, we must not show partiality or favoritism. Here, James says, let, let, let me give you an example of what I mean. So James paints a picture of some kind of a gathering of Christians. Most assume that this was just like the weekly worship gathering, at the church service. Though it could be some sort of Christian court because of all the legal and court language that goes through the rest of this chapter. But I tend toward thinking this is just the regular old church service that James is describing here. And James says, on this Lord's Day, a really flashy rich guy walks in. And everyone flocks to him. Everyone wants to make sure that he feels welcomed. And not only welcomed, but honored. Everyone else needs to know that he is very welcomed and that he is our very special guest and to make him feel important because he is important. And yet, simultaneously, a poor guy in rags walks in. Not only does everyone not flock to him, but he's lucky if anyone even notices him walk in. And actually everyone would just be a little bit more comfortable if he would leave. He's poor. He's dirty. He might smell bad. He makes me feel uncomfortable. 
he and I really don't have that much in common. So what are we going to talk about? And in the end, he's probably going to end up asking me for help. On top of that, what if the rich guy sees us welcoming and talking to that guy? What's he going to think about us? He's going to think we're with him. So I guess we can't kick him out. But let's make sure that everyone else knows, him included, that he's not with us. So he can go stand over there in the corner or underneath our feet. He's not with us. Perhaps the inner dialogue that I just provided hits a little bit too close to home for some of you in here. It hits close to home for me because these are actual thoughts I've had of other human beings. What, what is happening in us when we respond this way to different kinds of people, showing honor to those whom we think are important and excluding and dishonoring those who we think are unimportant? James tells us in verse 4 what he thinks by asking rhetorically, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says that among us, the collective, the church, we're making distinctions. There is division, which is an idea that James has already in, introduced in chapter 1, in verses 6 and 8. James says that a man who doubts God is a double-minded man. There is division in his head, in his mind, where he has split loyalties, wanting two different things. In chapter 2, James is assigning the split loyalties of individuals to the entire church. You are divided. You are making distinctions. You are not acting as a whole and unified body. There is division amongst you. Well, I hope that it's not too difficult for you to realize that this is not just a first century problem. This is a problem of the human condition, which at its basis level is a problem of the worship of the self. Now, how's that? Because we treat people exactly like we treat any other commodity in our life. We pursue and value anything because we think that that thing will give us more satisfaction, will give us more happiness, will give us more respect, will give us more accolades, will give us more comfort. Seriously, think about why you wanted to buy that house as opposed to this house. Why you wanted to buy that car rather than this car. Why you wanted to eat that rather than this. Well, because this house is nicer. It's, it's more comfortable. It's more impressive. Because that car is bigger. It fa it's faster. It has, it's, it's a brand that more people respect. Because Oreos are delicious and carrots are not. <laughs> None of those decisions are inherently sinful in and of themselves. We just as humans will always make a decision based on whether or not that thing or that thing will, we think will give us more satisfaction. Like every time you make a decision, you will choose option A over option B because you think option A will give you more satisfaction. And that's even true when we are deciding whether or not we will choose to honor God or we will choose to sin. In the moment, which thing do we think will give us more satisfaction? 
And because we regularly treat people no differently than we treat houses or cars or snacks, we make decisions based on personal satisfaction. So as long as that person is a net benefit to me, as long as that person makes me laugh, as long as that person makes me feel good about myself, as long as that person helps me get into better or higher social circles, as long as that person just makes my life more enjoyable, I'm going to keep hanging out with him. I'm going to keep pursuing her, pursuing relationship and friendship with that person. They're a net benefit to my life. But the moment that that person becomes a net negative, they're awkward. They don't tend to raise me to higher social circles. They do the opposite. They, they tend to drag me towards lower, lower social circles. They make my life just a little less enjoyable. Then I'm going to avoid that person. I certainly won't pursue that person, and I might even try to exclude that person from my life. But what does James say about this kind of thinking? Especially when it's displayed and shared corporately, that it makes us judges with evil thoughts. We elevate ourselves to be the arbiter of what is important based on, as we'll see, some arbitrary standards that God couldn't care less about. When the pretty and attractive people deserve our attention, while the less physically attractive people don't, when we get really excited about celebrity or athlete Christians, but we ignore the humble and faithful church attender, James exposes us for what we are, evil and double-minded, not loving people without distinction, but making distinction, elevating one person over the other because of what we think makes them important, which we'll now see why that is such a big deal. What does God think is important? Verses 5 through 11. Let's just read 5 through 7 again. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? At first glance, it seems like James, along with his brother Jesus, by the way, is just straight up denouncing the rich and elevating the poor. It seems like he's saying, you know why it's really silly for you to elevate the rich? Because they're all going to hell. Why should you elevate the poor? Because they're all going to heaven. Sure looks like that, doesn't it? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But some careful observation of this verse, and especially this verse in light of everything else we know to be true from the Bible, will help us interpret. Notice that James doesn't just say that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich or to be heirs of the kingdom. He actually provides a little bit more nuance in there, doesn't he? He says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. And then the implication is that therefore they will be heirs of the kingdom. Why is it that the poor can be rich in faith? Because they recognize their great need. Very rarely do we rich people, and 
By the way, if you're living in America in 2016, you are richer than most people alive today, and you are far richer than every human being, nearly every human being that's ever lived. So while some are wealthier than others in this room, which adds a little bit of extra heat, there's a sense in which this should come as an especially pointed warning to all of us. But anyway, very rarely do we rich people have to worry much about provision. Most of us don't have to worry about what we're going to eat today or if we are going to eat. Most of us don't have to worry about where we're going to sleep tonight or if we'll live through the night because we're sleeping in such a dangerous place. The result, of course, is that we can tend toward going many lengths of days without even acknowledging that God exists or that we need him, that we are in need of his provision. The poor, who can often be rich in faith, on the other hand, must wake up in the morning and ask God to provide. If he does not, then they will go without. They must acknowledge him throughout the day and depend on his grace. And then when they receive his grace, they are likely much quicker, much more quicker to respond in gratefulness. As opposed to most of us who just kind of go on silently and implicitly assuming that God owes us three meals a day with some snacks in between in a safe house in a safe neighborhood. So let's be clear. It's not a bad thing to eat snacks or have three meals a day in a safe house, in a safe neighborhood. The problem is that all of these things can just work as a sleeping potion, making us drowsier and drowsier to God's existence and our great need of him. So it's not necessarily their poorness, their lack of money that James is emphasizing here. We all know poor people who have no faith in God. They do not love him, as he says at the end of that verse, verse 5. And we all know rich people who have great and deep faith in God. They love him. But what James is emphasizing here is that the poor are very often rich in faith, which makes them heirs in the kingdom, and they love him. The poor, along with the rich, are co-heirs of the same spiritual benefits as anyone who shares their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, co-heirs in the kingdom, rich or poor. And yet these poor brothers and sisters, those whom the world says are utterly unimportant and should be ignored, these brothers and sisters who God instead says are co-heirs in the kingdom will someday rule along with the earthly rich as sub-kings and sub-queens under God's rule for eternity. These brothers and sisters you dishonor? What in the world? James is saying, I don't think you understand who you are. I don't think you understand who they are. I don't think you understand where you both came from, and I don't, I don't think you understand where you're both going if you dishonor the poor man. On top of that, James says... In verse 6, you want to know what's really crazy? It's so crazy for you to honor the rich while you dishonor the poor because the rich are the very ones who are oppressing you. They're dragging you into court. The very, the very traits that you are impressed with, the rich's money, their power, they'll turn around and use those same traits to oppress you, to persecute the church. Are you nuts? Don't, don't honor a guy on Sunday morning because he has a lot of money. 
On Tuesday morning, he could use that same money to go bribe a court official and have you thrown in jail. Are you crazy? You're going to show extreme honor to someone on Sunday who just days before is mocking Christ and his gospel of weakness? This would be like if Kanye West walked through our doors, a guy who claims to be a god and is all about promoting his own kingdom. If he walked through the doors and we rolled out the red carpet for him, we gave him his own private security detail and assigned Paul Mathis to clear out the rabble, all of you, so that our very special guest could sit at the seat of honor at the front. We might even be able to convince ourselves that we need to make him feel comfortable because if he came to faith, or even better, he became a member at Desert Springs, what a platform for the gospel. What a platform for Desert Springs. Oh, and and the gospel, right? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about celebrities and the state of their eternal souls, but our desire for the famous to be one of us, when we hear a celebrity say something on the radio or read about something they said about God or Jesus in People magazine, and we have this little twinge of excitement, ooh, they could be one of us. James is saying, are you crazy? These these people who are using their so-called importance, despite the fact that they are using that importance to ongoingly blaspheme God, We should care for people, we should love people, and we should pray for people and their souls, but we should not get suckered into thinking that some things make a person important when God doesn't think that those things are important at all. Solomon says in Proverbs 11, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So don't get distracted by the flashy. Don't get distracted that you forget that that gold ring is still in a stinky and slimy pig's snout. So I think I'm starting to make you understand, James says, but I don't think you're quite understanding how serious this is. Okay, look, verse 8, if if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, so James, like Jesus, is summing up the Old Testament law as a command to love. But seemingly, like Paul, James is making a distinction between Old Covenant law and New Covenant law for those on that side of the cross and for those on this side of the cross. In a phrase that's reminiscent of Paul's The Law of Christ in Galatians 6, James calls the command to love your neighbor as yourself the royal law. This is a phrase that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. While this phrase doesn't appear anywhere else, it wouldn't be totally unheard of in the first century world. The royal law of human kings is the laws, the expected way of living under a king and in his kingdom. So the royal law is the law of Christ for his kingdom and for his subjects. And as we know from Jesus' teaching, your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, includes everyone. It includes loving the poor. It includes loving the outcast. It even includes loving your enemy. 
It means loving those who don't bring a return on your investment. It means loving those who are a net neutral in sense of gain, and it includes loving those who are a net cost. This is why Jesus says that, look, everyone, even Gentiles, love those who love them in return. Everyone does that. Of course we do. When we treat people as commodities, everyone will live selfishly and love those who will make it worth the investment for you to love them. Everyone does that. But only those who have been changed by Christ are able to fully love without expectation in return. All humans, all humans are, in a sense, unfilled glasses. Maybe a little bit more water in some than others, but we are all Unfilled. We are all seeking anything and everything to fill us, to give us satisfaction, to give us meaning. We will search for meaning in anything, including people. So we may think, this person is rich. Maybe he can make me rich. Fill me up. This person is popular. Maybe she can make me popular, give me meaning that I've been looking for. That person is attractive. He or she gives me pleasure gives me meaning, or even better, maybe he or she will find me attractive in return. A never-ending search for meaning. But only maturing Christians are those who have been fully and truly satisfied by the love of God because he has made us to be filled by himself. And only Christians should then be those who are able out of abundance to look to fill others We've been filled. So now we're able to fill others rather than only using people to fill us. So James seems to be saying that if you are growing, if you are maturing in love of neighbor, if you are looking to fill rather than be filled, you are doing well. So actually, my opening illustration of the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays actually isn't a good one. Well, it's true that what appears to make someone actually important isn't all that reliable and true, the A's and the Rays were still looking for an enormous return on their investment. They were just looking in places that other teams weren't. But we as Christians, on the other hand, regardless of the return, we ought to recklessly love. We ought to recklessly and without re- expectation of return serve and honor anyone and everyone. And notice I said everyone. James doesn't, and he's not, he's not commanding or he's not implying here that his readers now start dishonoring the rich. The rich have had their time, so now we need to bar the doors and exclude them, or maybe we do let them in, but now we put them in the corner or in the dirt. That's not what he's saying. Now they'd just be showing partiality with reverse tables. The point is that where there used to be distinction, where there used to be disunity between the rich and the poor, now, as the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of fame, there is no amount of world-identified importance that can buy you acceptance in the kingdom and can buy you rank in the kingdom. Jesus says in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he loved any kind of person in the world. God loved the rich, 
He loves the poor. He loves Jew and Gentile, black, white, native, Hispanic, slave, free, unimportant, important, CEO, and homeless. There's now no distinction. Those who are trusting in the righteous life of Christ live for them. Those who are trusting in his cleansing blood to forgive them will find forgiveness, will find unity together with Christ and with each other. They will find unity together because they also share a shared rebellion. What all kinds of people all over the map also share before Christ is a shared fist shaking to the heavens. But now Christ has saved and made a new man. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The world ought to look at the church and marvel. That doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would those people who have very little in common not only hang out with each other, but love each other, serve each other, honor each other? That seems to be just an otherworldly thing going on over there, and it is. Only it seems that most of these Christians whom James is writing to aren't believing. They aren't acting rightly, so he rebukes them. He says, you're committing partiality and only loving those who will give you a good return. And that's not just a bad habit that you might need to think a little bit differently about or clean up. This is unbelievably serious. It seems like you don't understand the nature of the gospel at all. You are, no, you are not understanding and practicing pure and undefiled religion that flows out of you to the least of these. In fact, James says, let me think of two of the most serious sins I can think of. Murder and adultery. What you're doing is right there with those. So it will not do to say, yeah, I haven't murdered someone. Or, yeah, I have, I'm not sleeping with someone who's not my spouse. So, therefore, I must be living right as a person who is holding fast to faith in the Lord Jesus, James is saying, if you murder, you are a transgressor. You are a violator of the law. If you are an adulterer, you are a transgressor, a violator of the law. But if you honor the rich and the important and dishonor the poor, you are a transgressor, a violator of the law, and you need the saving and the cleansing power of the gospel in your life. It doesn't matter if you shoot a a plate glass window with a BB gun, a tiny little thing, or if you hurl a bowling ball through it, the window gets shattered. It's all the same. This is what Jerry Bridges is getting after in his excellent little book, Respectable Sins. That showing partiality and distinguishing between those whom we will love and honor is certainly a respectable and no big deal sin in America today. And showing partiality and making distinctions was a respectable and no big deal sin in these days as well. James says no more. It seems like, it seems like that the law standard has been lowered on this side of the cross. That we, look at us now, we only have to love God and love others. Glad we're off the hook from having to keep all of that Old Testament minutia of the law. That's great. Nope. The standard of the law has been raised through the roof and to the heavens. 
that we are to love freely without return, that we are to forgive and pray for our enemies, that we should no longer care about and honor people just for what pleasure they might bring or what greater standing they give me. These are weighty expectations for we Christians. And perhaps you, like me, are feeling this weight, this weight of failure, this weight of, man, I'm not living like I ought. I'm not honoring and loving people like I ought. I feel the weight of a bunch of oughts. I need to try harder and be better this week. Well, James has one more ought for us, but it's couched in what is already true in the gospel. How should we respond? Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's our concluding command from James. His parting words for us as we wrap up this section. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty, of freedom, the royal law, which stands in stark contrast to the law which James has just been describing, the law of which, under which we are all transgressors, under which we all stand condemned. We are violators. If we attempt to find or earn our way into God's acceptance, we will never do it. We are all violators, whether it is a BB gun or a bowling ball. We have broken the whole of it. But Christ has perfectly kept the law of the Old Testament. He has fulfilled the Old Testament law. It has been absorbed into him. And in our trusting in him, we get his perfect record. We get his perfect law-keeping. We are free. There is liberty from seeking to earn God's favor by rule-keeping. In Christ, we have God's favor. Now, if that's true... Speak and act as those who are to be judged on Christ's merit, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. Similarly, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Because of what Christ has done, how he has showed love and honor to the unimportant, all of us, now, Speak and act in the same way. Now, no longer live for yourself, but live for righteousness. Now, live to show love and honor to those who are unimportant. Or even thinking through Paul's command in Romans 12, to outdo each other in showing honor. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If you are not showing mercy and grace to others it's more than likely that you don't actually understand grace and mercy. You don't understand the gospel. And therefore, on the last day, this judgment that James is writing about, you will not be shown grace and mercy. This is not, don't hear James or me wrong, this is not show grace and mercy and you get forgiveness. This is not obey and therefore you'll be accepted. But as Tim Keller says, this is I'm accepted and therefore I obey. If I do not show grace and mercy, I don't understand grace and mercy. And this might come as a heavy weight for you. You might be looking into the mirror of God's word in James 2 and you might not like what you see. 
might think I've been coming to church my entire life. I'm very familiar with the ins and outs of the gospel, but the mirror is showing me something ugly. The mirror is showing me someone who only loves those who will bring a return. Well, James concludes with a ray of hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment, even with this last day's judgment. For those in Christ, we will not get what we deserve, which is condemnation. We will receive mercy because Jesus has lived for us, because Jesus has died for us, because he has been buried and raised to new life for us. We will receive mercy because he has loved us. And even as we imperfectly love him and we imperfectly love others, even as we grow out of our worldly inclination to show partiality, mercy triumphs over judgment. Keep believing the gospel. Keep repenting and believing. Keep holding firm and grasping the cross. But if Jesus is the Christ, but he is not your Christ, then do not look into the mirror and walk away unchanged. The weight of, I ought to, but I haven't, is heavy. And if that's the case, if that burden of weight is heavy, then hear Christ who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The ground is level at the foot of the cross for all of us. We all bring different backgrounds and stories, but we all also bring rebellion and sin. We're now moving into one of the most worship striking and inducing times of the year because we are celebrating and worshiping what God has done to save sinners. We're celebrating and observing baptisms. We're celebrating and worshiping what God has done because every sinner saved is a miraculous work of God. A former dead person who's now alive. And so it doesn't matter if the person who is entering the pool is rich or is poor. It doesn't matter if they've been to jail and came to Christ there or if they grew up in a youth group and came to Christ, they've known him as long as they've been alive. I can't remember a time not trusting in the gospel. It doesn't matter because the, the ground is equal, is level at the foot of the cross. Each person is proclaiming to the world that they are with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Including both services this morning, we are baptizing 14 people, and that is 14 people who are professing themselves to be former law-breaking rebels who were far from God, who wanted nothing to do with him. But now look what God has done. He has saved. He has shown saving mercy, which triumphs over judgment. This is the gospel. Mercy, great Mercy, which triumphs over what would be just judgment in our life. Let's thank God together for what he has done, and then let's sing together of his great, great saving mercy. Our Father, we pray that your word this morning has caused us to agree with you more and more about who we are apart from you. 
that we might agree with you about our great sin, about our rebellion against you, and that we might agree with you that our only hope is you to show us mercy through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Our Father, we pray that believing and trusting this more deeply uh, might cause us to overflow with seeing people as, as, as objects of love, as objects of service, as objects of showing honor, indistinct of whether they are rich or poor, whether or not they've come from a place of importance or unimportance as the world might deem them. And we pray that we might see ourselves as all people, sinners in need of grace, sinners in need of mercy. So Father, we pray that you might, um, even this morning, cause some who perhaps this morning when they arrived were not in agreement with you about their sin. We pray that you would save. We pray that you would give a new heart. We pray that you would give repentance and faith. We pray that you might even do this by observing testimonies of those who are proclaiming faith in Christ. We pray that you might do this for your great name's sake, for the name of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory who reigns now even now on the throne over us. We pray for these things in his name. Amen.